Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Rivinder is here in the studio with me, so Rav, say hello to everyone, share your special insight as usual for the day, and please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello everyone, I am so glad that you can join us. Um, If you want more information about the show, you can always check out our Facebook page at Provocative Enlightenment Radio, Uh, we always... uh, you know, put the posts up there, whatever additional information the guests may provide. If, if, if there's any special earls or anything, you can find it right there. So just go to Provocative Enlightenment Radio at, on Facebook. All right. In this week's Spotlight, I want to discuss hermeneutics or the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary texts. This past week, I had an opportunity to discuss with a friend our recent show with Professor Patrick Grimm. At one point in our conversation, Grimm suggested that he was becoming more and more inclined towards perspectivism, the idea that perception, experience, and reason change according to the viewer's relative perspective and interpretation. I referred to the work of Nietzsche, in particularly his Will to Power essay, and his view of perspectivism as a hermeneutical philosophy, or the idea that our understanding of the world is built in a loop. That is to say, we engage with the phenomena of the world, a part of life, and this challenges our understanding, which triggers reflection and or reinterpretation aimed at a greater understanding which raises the need for meaning and this need for meaning is projected through our action or speech which in turn leads to our engagement with that part of life again in other words much of our understanding of the world and ourselves for that matter is circular in nature self-defining. This process creates our expectation, which leads to our interpretation of our perception, and that confirms our understanding, and this circularity continues over and over again. Indeed, much of what we call confirmation bias originates and is reinforced by this sort of circular mechanism. We tend to hear or interpret information according to our bias, and we build models of the world out of this. All of our understanding is based on the models we have constructed or adopted. The models themselves are based on assumptions that may or may not be true. 
This is as true of much of science as it is of our personal beliefs. If our models are wrong, then so are our conclusions. Last week, our spotlight was all about certainty. Bottom line, there is very little of anything that we can be absolutely certain of. Understanding the nature of hermeneutics informs us of just another way in which uncertainty is certain. My friend rejected the idea of uncertainty and perspectivism for it makes the world too complicated. Perhaps Grimm's words regarding free will explains this rejection. For he said, I must believe in free will in order to live. I get that. What he did not say was that free will actually existed. Instead, he admitted the importance we all place on believing that we have free will. In fact, he went on to add the caveat that we might just need to redefine free will, for it wasn't the same as most people think. It's not a simple matter of choosing which piece of paper to ride on, what amusement park to visit, or what color to choose, blue or red. The unconscious is intimately involved in all of these choices. It's much more complicated than that. Decisions are often made in the unconscious, and our act of conscious will is only a manifestation of what our unconscious has preformed or decided beforehand. I am reminded of a recent discussion with Professor Joel Weinberger. Weinberger is a leading authority on the unconscious. In his words, paraphrased, there is no such thing as conscious activity separate from unconscious processes. When we think of ourselves understanding the role the unconscious plays in our lives and the nature of how we build models or our personal hermeneutic philosophy, it's reasonable to accept the idea that much of what we know, in quotation marks, may be entirely false. To that end, every week I implore that you be willing to be uncertain for an hour. Those are my thoughts. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, there's a great deal there. You know, the whole subject on free will. You have to believe in free will in order to exist, but that doesn't mean you should turn off your own thinking process, being aware of how you're influenced, how you're programmed. And I just see this more and more. I think the majority of people exist in boxes, you know, boxes of society, boxes of family, enculturation. And there is so much more out there. You just have to be prepared to be uncertain for a while. Today's guest is going to definitely give us an opportunity to do that. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last live show featured Professor Patrick Grimm addressing the incomplete universe. Joan wrote, listening to your radio show is like visiting with a think group. Thank you for the unusual show. Mark wrote, loved your show with Professor Grimm. I think this whole matter of how the unconscious is active and our conscious activity is the most interesting subject one can spend time thinking about. Moving on, David wrote, good day from down under Mr. Taylor. I use your recording daily. Recently, I finally bought and used nonviolence. I am a different man, more settled. 
Millie wrote, over the past several months, I've gone to sleep listening to Connecting with Your Quintessential Self. Many, many nights. This has given me the most wonderful results. I would have to say it's life-changing. Thank you so much for InterTalk and your amazing work. And Richard wrote, InterTalk is the most powerful tool in my arsenal. It harnesses the power within me to make dreams come true. Don't go a single day without a dose of power. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your comments and suggestions. Now to today's show. Is a young earth possible? With Professor Jay Hall. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Jay Hall is assistant mathematics professor at Howard College in Big Spring, Texas. He has a Master of Science degree in mathematics from the University of Oklahoma. He has more than 53 hours of science courses in various other disciplines. He also has experience in the actuarial field for a number of insurance and consulting organizations. Hall has previously published Calculus is Easy. His new book, Is a Young Earth Possible?, is the subject of today's show. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Jay Hall. Nice to be here. Yeah, I've got to tell you, your book is riveting. Uh, But before we get into it, we like to know three things on this show, sir. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And of course, how do we use it? To begin with, to that end, what are you passionate about and why? Well, I, I have a deep interest in science, but just like a number of different issues that come up, whether it's uh, uh, climate change or, or some different issues, often there's another way uh, to look at it and try to break down science uh, so that the average person can, can grasp it. And in terms of uh, uh, ultimate meaning, I think that we all have to, to search for that. And uh, we can only do that if we kind of uh, do some exploration. And if, if we take a very depressing view, that maybe life doesn't have meaning that can have consequences to, to how we live our life and i think it is a practical where where do we come from because that's a foundational issue okay you heard today's spotlight then let's pursue that as a math professor how disappointed are you that the so-called facts most people accept i would i would even say we all accept may just be wrong well, you know, uh, I believe in quarks. I haven't seen one, but uh, a question could be, you know, what what is a quark made of and so forth. And I haven't uh, been to the outer edges of the universe, but I've seen Hubble images, and I trust that they are accurate. Actually, one of the NASA uh, astronauts that helped to fix it after it had gotten torn up, he actually came to our school and gave a talk about how he did it. And so, uh, you know, I'm trusting a lot of people that they're giving me this information, and I don't think it's all some total conspiracy, but we do have to uh, apply our freedom of choice and uh, question things when maybe they go against our presuppositions or belief systems, or we say, hold it, one, one supposed fact seems to contradict another supposed fact. There are lots of people in science today that talk about, you know, paradigm shifts and, uh, and, and there are a number of, um, I don't want to call them fringe, but, uh, but they're, 
they're they're not in lockstep with uh, uh, traditional scientists who are pushing different issues. And in a sense, isn't that the case with what you're doing with your book? I mean, you're you're kind of redefining the way much of history has been interpreted, geology, etc. Oh, that's exactly right. So. Often, in terms of the age of the Earth, we start off with a, a geological argument. But over time, especially, uh, say, from the 60s to the 70s, uh, a, basically a geological revolution occurred where uh, the catastrophic view has gained more ground, which says, say, like uh, Mount St. Helens had its uh, 40th anniversary of its explosion. Well, that deposited uh, hundreds of feet of sediment uh, relatively quickly. So with that view, it shortens the, the, the time scale. But in terms of being contrary, if you take a look at the history of science, say starting with a, a Galileo or Copernicus, through most of the history of science, say maybe even almost up to uh, 1800 or 1900, the young Earth view was, view was actually predominant. And it's not even on the same level as a flat Earth, which to me, that's uh, a little bit way out there. Okay. Now, I've got to be fair to our audience and everyone else. I've, I've been through your book read your book, uh, and, and of course you wrote the book. So you and I are talking about it as though we, you know, we know what the content is. I want to get into that content so our audience understands it, but basically your argument is they've got it wrong with an old earth. We'll take that apart. First, I have to ask you an agenda. You, you know, I must ask you, are you religiously predisposed to want the Earth to be much younger than what most scientists insist? Well, I am a born-again Christian. I believe Jesus is the way. But what I'm trying to present is a way of explaining it so that even if Aristotle was still alive today, he would be convinced of younger theory. All right, Aristotle got many things wrong, but all right. <laughs> That's enough. You were honest about it. I have, I'm going to ask one more question of that kind about agenda. Do you believe the Bible's chronology is even approximately correct? I think so. I think that matches up with, say, uh, the Mayan uh, chronology and the Mesoamerican chronology in general and traditional uh, dates for the beginning of the Egyptian history, which is in, say, the 2200 B.C. range or the beginning of uh, Chinese history which I think its first calendar was dated around 2300 uh, B.C. So there are other corroborating uh, ancient chronologies that, that fit it as well. Okay, now just to get, you know, a foundation here. Uh, one of the more compelling arguments that I'm familiar with regarding the story of life on this planet, according at least to evolutionary science, approved science, is that it takes DNA to create DNA. Uh, scientists have found that the surface of comets have simple organic molecules that could also have been available on the young Earth, either because they were present in the material from which our planet was formed or were subsequently delivered by comets or meteorites. They argue that this molecular material could feasibly have assembled itself into a DNA. It, you know, the other side of that argument says that's not possible. And the work that's been done with in test tubes to create artificial life, just to see, or, or, or the beginning, the building blocks of life, I should say, 
just would not account for assembling DNA. So where are you on this basic building block of life? Well, you have a lot of pieces, but to construct a house or even a a chair, uh, you have to put the pieces together in the right way. And if we look at the geological evidence, ever since the very, very beginning, there's evidence that uh, oxygen was in the atmosphere. And for most of the processes to get the amino acids to do what they have to do, even if it was a random process, which, again, you know, if you're hoping for just chance, we could all go to uh, Las Vegas. But the idea is uh, with the oxygen in the atmosphere, that's a big killer for origin of life uh, from a materialistic viewpoint. So from your perspective, the ar- if I understand you correctly, you accept the argument that life could have uh, created itself? Or are you saying you reject that as mathematically improbable and there is insufficient uh, foundation for that in biology? Yeah, I would say that from an evolutionary perspective, that's the hardest problem and they have not solved it. And many of the Darwin uh, believers actually admit that, that the origin of life is, uh, we're still researching it, but we have not solved it. And so I think it, life did not originate that way. Okay, let me pursue this a little more. You argue in your book that the missing link between us and apes is not yet known. So we, Correct. we we don't have, we we neither have an understanding of how life originated, and there is no, no direct link, uh, the Piltdown Man kind of thing, all those hoaxes, they were indeed just hoaxes, the link is missing. Flesh that out for us. Well, the, the assumption is that uh, the lower primates, we have a lot of similarities, but that must be where our origin is. And depending on how you look at it, you get uh, contrary answers, uh, chimpanzees or orangutans. And, uh, and uh, we uh, could look at different things. Uh, uh, the skull is often what's compared, but we could look at, say, the spine, which, you know, there's tons of curves in a, in a human spine. But, of course, language is the kicker. And even uh, Tom Wolfe, the famous uh, journalist who wrote uh, The Right Stuff and many other popular books, uh, that was his last book, uh, The Kingdom of Speech. And so our abstract ideas that we have, and you talked about the subconscious, our uh, our world of dreams, everything uh, that makes a human a human, our essence is leagues above the type of communications that that the lower animals have. So you you base... You base your uh, assumption uh, that there will never be a link found on the operation of consciousness difference, uh, language, dreams, etc. Did I get that right? Yes, I think that's the thing where our abstract thought is is the key thing in language and speech. Those are the key things that clearly uh, distinguish us, and that's how Aristotle uh, tagged us as a rational animal. There are, there is a lot of evidence accumulating that animals are able to communicate. Uh, would you call communication? Um, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be lexical. Is there a form of language? I mean, if we were, if we were to find that dolphins, as a case in point, uh, have a vocabulary, exchange information, uh, etc. Uh, would you therefore be challenged on that that grounds, the grounds that, you know, it is consciousness that makes us different, our ability to think? 
Well, there there is definitely some sophisticated uh, communication among the animals, definitely dolphins and whales. Uh, but it, but at the base, uh, they're not discussing uh, mathematical theorems. You know, they don't build libraries uh, or hospitals. Uh, they don't bury the dead. I mean, again, I'm trying to get the general idea. I know you you know right. dolphins right. can't dig holes in the ocean, but I'm trying to generalize the idea. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a math question, something that I've personally been interested in. You know, the mind is such that we look for patterns. That's the very first thing we do is identify a pattern. So you can show um, just a a drawing, a circle with two dots, uh, one below it, and then a a bit of a a curved line emulating a smile, and that will draw a small child's attention. But you can invert that same picture, and they have no interest in it whatsoever. We're, we begin searching for patterns. It's natural to look into the world and see an ape, as a case in point, um, and, and, and see a similarity. And, and, of course, you know, biology talks a lot about the similarity, and, and we just mentioned the missing link. Now, there you can go to a fruit fly, and lots of experiments are done with fruit flies that lead to um, discoveries in the human condition. And there are a great deal of uh, genetic similarities to a fruit fly. As a mathematician, have you ever looked at what are the percentage probabilities that um, differentiate the likelihood we could have come from an ape versus something as simple as a fruit fly? Well, you, you take a step by step and you have to put in all, all the stages. Uh, and so when we have a theoretical stages, we can compare that with what we find in the in the fossil record. And so there's varieties of orchids or varieties of dogs and, and so forth, uh, varieties of bears. But you have a basic uh, essential uh, core of uh, uh, what you have. And you were talking about children. Uh, even a child can recognize a horse uh, when they see one. And so what I'm saying is that uh, we could theoretically come up with these stages in the step-by-step genetic uh, changes, which we often talk about, molecular clocks. But even that sort of thing doesn't quite uh, uh, match up. So even if we uh, try to theoretically piece those together, we, we quite, quite can't yet. Uh, the chances that not only in the living world that we can't find these missing links, but also in the fossils we can't find these missing links, I think argues more towards uh, the stasis of uh, essential types of life rather than a gradation from one slight change to another that we eventually get from, say, like a bicycle and it turns into a Mercedes-Benz. Okay. There, there's a difference in evolutionary theory. And Lamarckian uh, theory has gained some extra traction in recent years. Do you distinguish between Darwinian or Lamarckian, or do you just outright reject the theory of evolution then? Well, there are certain things that, that help to uh, change uh, uh, organisms to adapt. And so you have the genes themselves. But then again, there are switches that turn genes on and off. And then, you know, the chromosomes are all wrapped up like knots. That's uh, back to math. Uh, but the idea is that uh, we, can't, uh, we can't just uh, 
uh, get everything all at once. But sometimes, uh, say, in colder climates, obviously a polar bear is different. So in other words, sometimes what's going on in the environment helps uh, to uh, the organism reacts in a certain way. And sometimes it's called facilitated variation. But that, in a sense, relates uh, to the environment, definitely. But whatever the organism is, you only have so much information. And if you only have enough information, uh, say, to make a fruit fly, uh, you can't go to the next step to say, uh, make a frog without added information. And that's the question that evolutionists have uh, trouble with. All right. You're a professional. You're a professor in a university. Uh, I'm sure that many of your contemporaries uh, are going to look at some of what your theories are and uh, and they're going to challenge you with it if challenge is an accurate word. They, they may even, you may even find that you're in a club all by your lonesome. But one of your book reviews expresses what I suspect could be representative of many in the sciences. And the review states, I have spent the last decade of my life studying geology. Con- content like this is just as harmful and just as ignorant as anti-vaccine and flat earth believers to this sort of objection or criticism, particularly with your colleagues. What do you say? Well, I, I do get that reaction. And in terms of the flat earth, uh, going back to Aristotle, he knew the earth was round. And of course, there's the famous calculation of Aristosthenes, which I think he was only maybe a couple of thousand miles off on the, the uh, circumference of the earth. So right. the ancients right. knew the earth was spherical. And uh, despite the Washington Irving story, uh, Columbus himself knew the Earth was a sphere. And so I think a lot of that uh, is, is fairly easy uh, to refute. But in terms of the geological side, I am willing uh, when people give me suggestions, oh, you should read this or, or look at this article. And I do. And I have even bought books that kind of come from the other perspective. But just one simple geological example is if you've been to the Grand Canyon at the very bottom because most of the rocks are horizontal, but at the very bottom, they're tilted. Well, that represents an event where the rocks were moved around and a lot of them were eroded away. Well, what am I claiming? I'm claiming that thousands of years ago, there's flood legends from around the world, that that represents uh, the beginning of this great catastrophe that many, many cultures from around the world uh, said happened just a few thousand years ago. I got you. Professor, we have a break. When we come back, I want to get into your book so i'll give you a heads up you have a chapter on dragons and dinos i'm I'm going to want to know what that's all about we're speaking with professor jl hall about his work and book is a young earth possible i start this show and i and every week we talk about uncertain for just an hour well maybe we need to be uncertain for a little longer than an hour we'll dig into just exactly why the professor believes evolution doesn't give the story. What's the evidence on the other side? What evidence is there that would support uh, an idea that the biblical chronology of life is how it all came about? You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting youngearthsciencebook.com. As one word, youngearthsciencebook.com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Unlock the power of your mind. This is 
Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor J.L. Hall about his work and book, Is a Young Earth Possible? You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting youngearthsciencebook.com. As one word, youngearthsciencebook.com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. In fact, this past week, a new study revealed that every heart dances to a different tune, even if the tune is the same one. Think about that. If there are 10 of you and you're listening to the same piece of music, maybe you're even physically dancing, your heart is nevertheless expressing that music differently. It is beating differently to that music. All right. Now, your chosen music, Professor, is Man Gave Names to All the Animals by Bob Dylan. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Well, thank you again. Uh, well, uh, there are two philosophers, uh, Kripke and Putnam, and they talk about that we tend to put things into category and to natural kinds. And I think that's an excellent example. Well, uh, you name something, and okay, I'm going to call this a meme. Well, we're going to put it on the Internet. It's going to get popular. Well, someone had to first uh, come up with that idea, and it might have been uh, Richard Dawkins. I'm not quite sure. But the idea is we have to kind of give a name to something to start off so that after that, most people will call it that name, whether it's a chair or a table. And so uh, if we go back far enough, uh, Kripke and Putnam actually uh, use the name. It's a baptismal event. That's kind of where they went to. So if we would go to the traditional uh, view, we have to go all the way back to uh, the first man, Adam. All right. I, I, I suggested to you at the break that I was going to ask you about dragons and dinos. Um, what, what is that chapter all about? I mean, what's that got to do with a, a young earth? Well, uh, all the kids and everybody likes uh, dinosaurs, and we see them in the museum, and some of them are kind of like animatronic and move around, or Jurassic Park, and all, all these are popular. But supposedly, they all died out 65 million years ago, way before man came on the scene. But yet we see, say, for example, Native American uh, petroglyphs that even the uh, Native American scholar Vine Deloria said, you know what, well, maybe that refers to real dinosaurs. That's what they look like. And uh, there are many, many uh, dragon stories and dragon pictures that if you look at it, wow, that kind of looks like a dinosaur. And so there's many, many, many of these accounts. One that I like especially comes from uh, France, and it's uh, Taraski, probably butchering that name. Uh, but the, the town actually used to be called Nerluk, and it was changed because supposedly this uh, dinosaur, uh, a dragon-like dinosaur, uh, was a uh, uh, attacked, uh, eventually uh, conquered by a woman. Uh, and that, that was an interesting story. And it was celebrated for hundreds of years with a special parade. And someone, uh, kind of like the, in the Chinese parades, you know, they dress up as a dragon. Well, this town in France, someone would dress up as this uh, dragon, which uh, different uh, pictures of it, it sure reminds you of a dinosaur. But there's not just one or two stories like this. There are many and many. 
Okay, so if I get this correct, what you're saying is uh, there's evidence that would suggest that uh, dinosaurs lived alongside Native Americans, at least, uh, based on petroglyphs. Uh, I mean, is that what I is that what I heard? That's right. That's right. And there's even some stories, if you want to bring it to the current uh, time, of in Papua New Guinea of uh, uh, pterodactyls. And in terms of something that's living today, there was a, a documentary on the, on the History Channel, amazingly, and kind of got into this. And again, it's based on, uh, you know, individual accounts. We don't have the bones yet. Uh, but in terms of historically, say like Pliny the Elder in 77 AD when he wrote his uh, Natural uh, History, have many accounts of a whole bunch of different creatures. And yeah, some of them sound exotic, but many of them sure fit uh, our modern knowledge of, of dinosaurs. Yeah, I, I guess a doubting part of my, um, and I'm just playing devil's advocate, Professor. Um, you know, you we have something we call thematic apperception. So you, you get a Rorschach che- uh, test, and uh, what you're revealing when you're looking at that Rorschach is a predisposition, a psychological predisposition. Um when when someone looks at a petroglyph uh, and they determine that uh, you know the, this this is a prehistoric animal, not not a horse, I'm reminded of how young children draw animals and how some of them, instead of being a horse, might look more like an anteater. Um, do you think that that predisposition, that attitude, that boy, I'd like this to be the case? Uh, interferes with the objectivity that's necessary to interpret that kind of information in the way you're interpreting it. Yes, I see that aspect. And on the petroglyphs, you may may have a point. But say even on the uh, Chinese uh, dragons, they there's the traditional dragon that almost looks like a long long snake with a wild head. But there are sculptures, uh, older sculptures of uh, Chinese dragons, where it looks very much like your typical. Uh, dragon with a long neck, a uh, dinosaur, that is. And then if you go back to the story from France, they actually went through the whole trouble of uh, changing the name, and uh, they had this uh, parade that went on for hundreds of years. And so, and at one time when they tried to first attack it, there were 16 mar- armed men who uh, were not successful. So, I mean, you could doubt the, the origin of the story and so forth, but there are so many of these, even Carl Sagan a- admitted, well, maybe there's something to this, and thought that maybe there were a few dinosaurs that escaped the the well-known uh, bombardment of the Earth with a giant meteor 65 million years ago, and that those uh, dinosaurs that escaped extinction actually had some encounters with our pre-human ancestors, and somehow that tradition uh, led up to say, uh, you know, ancient man, and and continued on to more modern times. That's that's of course one possibility. Another possibility could be, you know, the the culture aspect of it. Could it not? I mean, all you need to do is have one person um, formulate a caricature, and from that, other people begin to copy it. So we have, um, you know, well, let's take Jesus since we're talking about the Bible. For a long time, he was blonde and blue-eyed. Um, Jewish person. Um, and much of that 
you know, was promulgated throughout particularly Europe and the Western culture. So one person produces an image and everybody copies that image. Do you think that's also possible? Uh, I mean, yeah, there's definitely iconic uh, dinosaurs. But one, one example that, that seems to uh, point out the otherwise is an Australian uh, newspaper published a picture that looked almost identical uh, to a duck-billed uh, dinosaur, and this was in the mid-1800s. And the Australian name was a Bunyip, and uh, it's amazingly like a, a, a duck-billed dinosaur. And, of course, the kids didn't have you know dinosaur books on every table like, like we do today. No, I know, but somebody could say, you could describe a Griffith. And um, you can describe it in detail uh, uh, in your novel. And then someone else is going to try and draw that Griffith. And now I'm going to have an image. And somebody then is going to sculpt that Griffith. And the word's going to spread. And we're going to hear about Griffiths. And we're suddenly going to believe that there is this, you know, half-lion creature um, that that perhaps exists, the same with unicorns, et cetera, and so forth. Don't you think that that is a possibility with regard to, you know, Chinese dragons and and so forth? Yes, I think so. It's just the sheer number, and sometimes they even involve anatomical facts that weren't known until more recently. Like there's a nobleman in England. He has his grave, and in his uh, tomb, there's uh, I think it's engraved in brass, but it has the necks entwined and horizontal, which that knowledge of the physiology of dinosaurs wasn't known until more modern times. So the detail you're suggesting is is too exact to um, for it to have been some character that was created in some writing, some story, some myth. That's what I'm claiming. Of course, there's traditional pictures of St. George and the dragon, and so those are imitated. And I, I would agree with you to that point. Okay. Now, at the same time, I want to be fair, and I want to come back to your Columbus story. The idea that the Earth was flat is something that's taught in most schools still to this day. Uh, but as you pointed out, um, a couple of hundred years before Christ, uh, the Greeks actually calculated the circumference of the of the earth. But, but I have to ask you then, why do you accept the biblical story of creation? What what evidence do you do you use? Well, I think that's uh, uh, a starting point and uh, it's it's uh, something that I would refer to uh, Mortimer Adler, the philosopher, he wrote a book, A Truth and Religion, and he goes through a long argument, but basically he narrows it down to uh, either uh, Judaism or Christianity or Islam in terms of revealed religions. And uh, the analogy I like to use is, as a father, uh, I want to communicate to my son how to live life, uh, what's right, what's wrong. And so in that aspect, I don't believe that the intelligent designer would just uh, leave us out in the ocean without a paddle. And so I think you could make that argument, and I would encourage people to, uh, you know, read the uh, Tanakh, to read the uh, New Testament, uh, to read the uh, Quran, and, uh, you know, uh, pray for wisdom. Yeah, I, I think the hardest thing, and this is just, I'm speaking now for myself, uh, and not about the Bible, the hardest thing about accepting 
literal materialism, evolutionary materialism, is the would is the acceptance of the idea that you know uh, when it's done, it's done. That's it. There's no afterlife. There's no no um, you know not a lot of purpose I- even for that matter because there is no design that you're actually intended to fulfill, et cetera, and so forth. What you're saying is that without the belief, uh, you find life to be somewhat shallow? Yes. Actually, uh, a number of evolutionists uh, say that life is meaningless, and and Freud said, if uh, you ask that question, what's the meaning of life, Uh, you're obviously sick and have a libido problem. And, of course, we know we knew that answer was coming. And so some evolutionists admit that it's uh, we don't have a true basis for right and wrong and that uh, there is no afterlife. And and those are kind of depressing thoughts, I think. Yeah, it, it however, does not necessarily negate the sciences, the the need to have that belief. Uh, and, and this is a question. I, I don't mean this as a statement. Um, we can accommodate the sciences if we think of life as evolving in the natural way of some creative plan, some, you know, and and we can come up with all kinds of theories about when souls begin to inhabit bodies and so on and so forth. So we don't have to be locked into the strict chronology of the Bible in order to find ourselves capable of living a spiritual life. You accept that? Is that it? As a question, I'm putting that to you as a question. Well, that's that's often been suggested. Uh, what I'm saying is that is not a reasonable way uh, to make things. Uh, we as humans are creators. When we build a house, we build it in a certain way. Uh, we build a foundation. You put the piping and the electrics and, and, and gas lines in there. Uh, you build the uh, framing, uh, put the roof on, uh, put the shingles on, you put on the sheetrock. Uh, you may have pets inside. There may be pets and plants, and you decorate your house. There's kind of a process. So I, I would claim that the intelligent designer w- would do things in a systematic way and not in some long, drawn-out uh, process because we ourselves don't don't go through that. All right. Your book, you provide several examples of how science has facts wrong in your chapter, Deep Time versus History. Please provide some of those examples to our audience. Uh, well, sure. If we go back to uh, some of the, the philosophers, uh, uh, David Hume uh, thought that the Earth was probably young because uh, the world exploration doesn't really take that long. Uh, there was the famous Thor Heyerdahl, which a lot of younger people have never heard of. Uh, but in the 1940s, he traveled, say, from uh, South America to some Polynesian islands. And then in uh, 1970, he sailed from Morocco to Barbados. So it doesn't take that long for humans to stretch around the globe. And uh, the poet Hesiod talked about the five ages of man, the golden age, silver age, bronze age, and so on. And different things happen in these different ages. One of them is when the Trojan War happened. And so if we take uh, that, and it's kind of a simplified chronology, why aren't there uh, ten ages or dozens of ages? And if you look at uh, Homer and his stories, uh, they only go back so far. And another philosopher, Lucretius, uh, uh, the famous Stoic, he uh, said that things are getting better and we have different instruments and we have this. And uh, if, if man has been around for so long, why don't we have a whole bunch of stories like uh, Troy? 
and, and going back and back and back. And then when you combine it with the idea that, that uh, Neanderthals are our cousins, well, supposedly they lived for, you know, 100,000 years or so. So how come we don't have stories of their great exploits and uh, conquering the mastodons and such? And so from our human culture and our human remembrances and taking different chronologies, they only go back so far. So I'm claiming that uh, the beginning of humanity and the beginning of the world itself are not that separated. Have you actually worked the numbers yourself and dated this whole process? Well, um, I'm trusting on on other sources. Some say the Mayan calendar, you can pretty much get to a specific date. And it's 3000 something. That's why the, they said, OK, 2012 was a key year. And, you know, there was the movie with uh, the catastrophe and everything. Uh, but one scholar who studied all of the Mesoamerican countries basically said he put it between, say, like 3300 B.C. and 4500 B.C., trying to match up the king lists and so forth as the actual beginning of the world based on their traditions. And the Mayans were especially neat because their measurement of the year, the measurement of the, uh, the cycle of Venus was extremely accurate based on their level of technology. So you're basically saying the Earth's between 5,500 and 6,500 years old in your opinion? Yeah, I'm definitely saying thousands. And in terms of a specific science thing, even those that have studied Earth's magnetic field and its decay actually specified the number at around 10,000. Okay, now I know you have to be familiar with carbon dating. And uh, you, you're going to have to explain to me how they, how they have got that wrong. What, what's wrong with the science of carbon dating? Well, uh, up to a historical times, it's fairly accurate. Basically, once you go beyond 400 B.C., it goes a little bit uh, wonky. But in general, for things that are just a few hundred years old or maybe a few thousand, it seems to be relatively okay. But because we assume that all these rocks and fossils are millions of years old, often those aren't dated. But some even dinosaur material has been dated with radiocarbon, da radiocarbon dating and come up to, say, uh, 40,000 years old or, or somewhere in that range. And so it's within the level of tolerance for radiocarbon dating. And yet, supposedly, dinosaurs uh, went extinct 65 million years ago. And other items, say like wood, has been uh, dated at rocks supposedly millions of years old. And again, coming up with uh, uh, dates of, say, like 30,000 years and so forth. You're the mathematician. What's the problem with it? I mean, is the deterioration model incorrect? I mean, what 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 is the problem with it? Why would there be that great a... Uh, an error. Well, uh, for some historical things, we have trouble exactly getting the right date, especially once we go back, you know, past, say, 1000 B.C. Uh, that's uh, the slight part of it. But I think the primary part of it is assuming there was this great worldwide catastrophe that uh, created most of the world's uh, geological materials. Uh, then that would have drastically changed the atmosphere, which relates to the carbon cycle and the the, the plants in the past. Uh, probably there were uh, way more plant material in the past than the Earth has changed. And, of course, you have continental drift and all these different things. I think all those effects and possibly the magnetic field itself, because that allows more uh, radiation into the atmosphere, which affects the radiocarbon dating. Uh, several different effects at the same time, I think, uh, kind of threw the, the dating a little bit off. Okay, the world of physics gets involved in this, though. We have the Big Bang Theory, expanding universe, da-da-da-da-da. So are you saying that our solar system, that the planets themselves indicate a young age as well? 
Uh, that's right. A number of them have uh, magnetic fields, which those are hard to explain because they should have kind of petered out. Uh, a couple of the planets, uh, they're spewing off way too much heat. Of course, they absorb uh, heat from the sun. Uh, but to have an internal, jewel, internal energy source, say like from radioactive decay, that eventually is only going to last so far uh, long. And some of the planets are so small that wouldn't even explain that. And say like Pluto, it's spewing off uh, methane and nitrogen at a rapid rate. Well, if it's millions of years old, that process should have stopped already. All right. Professor, we've got about 30 seconds here. And in that 30 seconds, I want you to tell our audience how they can learn more about you, access your work, lectures, uh, anything you may have available, including obtain your book, Is a Young Earth Possible? Thank you very much. Well, you can just go to Amazon and search Young Earth Possible. That'll get you right there. Or you can go to my website, uh, totalyouth.us, and you can go to the contact page. You can just email me directly, youngearthscience at yahoo.com. And I'd appreciate a follow on Instagram. It's just yesway77. All right. I appreciate you, sir, your work and your book and your willingness to share it with us. It is a interesting read, a challenging read, and for those of you in our audience interested in uh, re-examining maybe some of your own ideas, I'm not sure where I am on this one. I, I, I have to admit that I tend toward the science, but this is well worth being fully informed on. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.